Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Planned Parenthood is an organization that provides health care services to women, such as sexually transmitted disease screenings, birth control, and pregnancy tests. It also provides abortions. That's why Planned Parenthood is a lightning rod for elected officials and activists who oppose abortion. Anti-abortion legislators on both sides of both the state and federal levels have attempted to fight the abortion battle by cutting off funding to Planned Parenthood. It's been illegal to use federal funds for abortion since 1976. But Planned Parenthood receives government money in the way of Medicaid payments for low-income women. The recently defeated Obamacare repeal bill uh, that was defeated in the U.S. Senate would have defunded Planned Parenthood for one year. There's legislation in Pennsylvania that would defund Planned Parenthood here. We're going to hear from those who oppose and those who support defunding uh, Planned Parenthood on the first part of today's program. Joining us in the first segment of today's show is Diane Gramley, who is president of the American Family Association of Pennsylvania. Ms. Gramley, welcome to the program. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. So let's get right into it. You support defunding Planned Parenthood. Why? Because they don't serve, They do not provide the services that they claim to, for one thing, and that they do, in fact, perform abortions, and their major revenue stream is through abortion. When we look at, um, they actually only service like 1% of Pennsylvania's population. And, um, you know, it just, the, the money that they get through our tax dollars is, is taking the lives of babies. And it's not providing, again, not providing the services that they, that they um, say they do. You know, there are 326 alternatives to the 30-some Planned Parenthood sites for women's health. Now, when you say alternatives, what do you mean? What specifically do you mean? Uh, uh, you know, like community health centers and such as that. You know, there's, there's 326 alternatives at, that actually provide the services that, such as mammograms, that Planned Parenthood claims to provide. Women cannot receive mammograms from any, facility, any Planned Parenthood facility in the United States, let alone Pennsylvania, because they are not licensed to do so. They can provide a clinical uh, breast exam at some Planned Parenthood affiliates, but they cannot provide an actual mammogram. And that's one of the the key things that Planned Parenthood seems to be pushing is that we provide mammograms. We provide all these, these, you know, health benefits to women, and that's not the case. Well, I have to admit that uh, in researching the program, I have not seen uh, Planned Parenthood claiming to, uh, you know, offer mammograms. Uh, you know, as I listed in the introduction, sexually transmitted disease screenings, birth control, pregnancy tests. Now, when you say um, as far as uh, they do, in fact, uh, perform abortions, well, th- there's no question about that that they do. But they say it is 3 percent of uh, the services that they provide. Three percent. Well, that's their major revenue stream, though. And back to the S. You mentioned STD testing. Over eighty-five percent of Pennsylvania sites offering STD pe- uh, testing are not Planned Parenthood sites. Um, it just they just aren't. You know, there's not the majority yet. They're receiving our, our tax dollars to majorly to not to perform abortions because, as you mentioned, federal. You know, the law is they can actually use the tax dollars to perform abortions, but it is used to pay their electric bill or pay staff or whatever that would freeze up money to um, to go towards the abortions. It's just, it's, um, it's, it's a money stream, and um, it's, it's not such as, in, uh, let me look, let me give you some figures. In 2015, there were 31,818 abortions in Pennsylvania. Nearly half, or 15,820, of all abortions in PA were to white women. 13,332 were to black or African-American women. 
Do you know what the, the percentage of black, of, of African American citizens live in Pennsylvania? It's about 11 percent, yeah. Exactly, 11.3 percent as of the 2010 census. But compare that, 11.3 percent, but yet 13,000 of the overall abortions in PA are on African Americans because many Planned Parenthood facilities are set up in, in the communities within urban areas within, within a black uh, community. And, you know, it just, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it just seems that they are being targeted. And when you look at those numbers from 2015, there's there's no doubt that the black community is being targeted. When you okay, when you say targeted, it's not like uh, people from abortion clinics or Planned Parenthood go out into the community and say, "Hey, would you like an abortion?" I mean, these people come to uh, get a, an abortion performed voluntarily, and. Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, uh, the Medicaid payments in particular are for low-income women, which uh, even though blacks make up 11% of the population, there's a disproportionate number of African Americans who are uh, have lower incomes as well. Doesn't that explain that? Uh, to, to a point, but again, they're, they're, they're putting their facilities in, and this is nationwide, not just Pennsylvania, where they specifically put their facilities in black communities. And where there are more low-income women, where there are more low-income women, but it's not the, the the whole thing is when when two patients walk into a Planned Parenthood, the majority of times one patient walks out because the 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 patient that can't be seen, the one that's in utero, is is killed, and no, no matter what the color of the, the the baby is, no matter what the color of the mother is. The baby is killed. The second patient is killed, and they're to- the parents are told that the mother is told, you know, this will fix your problem. And they're not. There's there there are very very few um, adoption referrals from Planned Parenthood. Their goal is to make money. All right. So let me, you know, before we get on to the making money part, I mentioned that Planned Parenthood says three percent of their services are abortions. I have seen figures from pro-life groups like yours that say one in ten. That still is, you know, a percentage that is that means ninety percent of what Planned Parenthood does is not abortion related. Well, let's look at some Planned Parenthood keystones, uh, 2014-2015 annual report, and that found that it made a net profit of over $621,000, over 25% of the revenue coming from government grants, our tax dollars. But they made a $621,000 net profit that year. You know, that's some dollar figures we're talking about. So why do they need our tax dollars if they're making that kind of a profit? Mm-hmm. All right, so let me go back uh, to uh, what the gist of uh, the program is, is about defunding uh, Planned Parenthood. Abortion opponents have said that the Medicaid money indirectly goes to pay for abortions because it pays for equipment, salaries, facilities. As we pointed out earlier in the program, the Hyde Amendment from 1976 does not allow uh, you know, federal money to pay for abortions them, themselves. Now, but under this criterion, and I don't know whether you subscribe to this or not, but I, you've touched on it a little bit, any organization that receives Medicaid or federal funding is not using it just for the purpose they receive those funds. I mean, they pay for the electric, they pay for the equipment and all that. Do you subscribe to that uh, that theory? That the, that organization that receive, if we receive Medicaid money, use the money for else for like paying for the bills and such? No, that, that there is federal money that is used indirectly to pay for abortions. Indirectly? I believe so, yeah, because it frees up their other you know, the other revenue to go towards abortion. But isn't that the case for any organization that receives federal funding then? That, you know, it's almost all of it is, uh, I mean, almost every organization, I should say, is going to use it to spread around the organization. Yeah, that would probably be the case. But again, Planned Parenthood, federally, they receive about a half a billion dollars, a billion with a B. Every year, they receive about half a billion dollars every year. And they're the largest uh, abortion provider. So that's the main concern is that they provide abortions on on babies that should be allowed to live. Mm-hmm. 
The Guttenmacher Institute, which is a reproductive health organization, has estimated that family planning centers in Pennsylvania pre- prevented 52,800 unplanned pregnancies in 2014, uh, which likely would have led to 19,000 more abortions. So th- there are those who say that reducing the access to family planning by cutting the funding has consequences. Texas, for example, did this. And Texas, in Texas, when the family planning budget was cut, it uh, saw an increase in abortions, but also in maternal mortality rates. Uh, You know, I know Texas is often held up as an example of what could happen. So what about that? I mean, if you're trying to stop abortions, doesn't it make sense to try to stop unwanted pregnancies? To stop unwanted pregnancies? Absolutely. And one of the uh, things that, as I was researching this, over 87% of abortions performed in Pennsylvania in 2015 were to unmarried women. I think we need to be promoted natural marriage. And, you know, restrain yourself, you know, don't have sex before marriage. And these underage, sometimes underage girls who become pregnant, they are... If they have their child, they're, you know, many times they're left in poverty, so the child is brought up in poverty. But that does not mean they need to abort the child. They need to put the child up for adoption or off, you know, be offered that alternative, which Planned Parenthood very, very, very seldom offers, it the, offers them the alternative of putting the child up for adoption. That's where you have the other agencies that come in, other organizations that come in that offer alternatives to abortion that provide, provide them with, you know, birthing classes and support lead them to adoption agencies if they have the child. Just give them alternatives. The word many most of the time, Planned Parenthood gives them one alternative: abortion. You know, get rid of the quote unquote problem, which again kills the patient that is not seen. And it's uh, another thing that in uh, in Pennsylvania, patients under the age of 17 accounted for 3.1% of the abortions in 2015. Were those, you know, nationwide, there have been reports and been investigative reporters who have exposed Planned Parenthood for not reporting underage sexual assault. You know, girls come in to get an abortion and they're underage, but yet Planned Parenthood does not report those to to authorities. Now what what that evidence do you what evidence do you have to back that up? Under investigative reporters have gone in and done re, done investigations into underage girls going into Planned Parenthood to get an abortion and the abortion the Planned Parenthood does not report that to the police. Where where has that happened? Nationwide. I'm not saying it's happened here in Pennsylvania, but I'm saying nationwide that has happened. So you're you're talking anecdotally then, right? Yeah, I'm not saying this happened in Pennsylvania, but that's a question mark. You know, three point one percent of twenty fifteen pay uh, twenty fifteen abortions were patients age seventeen and under. Mm. Uh, Ninety thousand women utilized uh, Planned Parenthood services in Pennsylvania last year. Uh, women who use Planned Parenthood for services other than abortion, you know, that as I said, it's between three percent, and if you go by uh, the other figure, one in ten. The clinics you mentioned would see a big increase in clients, and there are those who say that you know what. They just could not handle the number of clients, these other clinics, that Planned Parenthood sees. Again, when we're looking at the numbers, though, we see that there's a, there are many, many more clinics, like community health clinics, than there are Planned Parenthoods. So, there, you know, there's a much larger number than, um, than Planned Parenthood. There are only 30-some Planned Parenthood facilities in Pennsylvania throughout the state. Ten of which perform abortions, and you know, again, vastly outnumbered as far as they're vastly outnumbered as far as uh, the community, the community um, facilities, mm-hmm. community health clinics. So, what I'm going to do is, uh, you know, this is I have to say that this is a difficult conversation to have because there is not much agreement on a, a lot of these issues. But Diane, I want to thank you very much for being with us during this portion of the program. Where do you go from here? Well, we again, we we do support we're, we support SB three, which is passed in the um, Senate and in February passed in the Senate. 
that would ban dismemberment uh, abortion uh, after uh, 20 weeks gestation. And we also support SB 300, which, which is our priorities language, and would um, uh, prioritize how the money is distributed, how the state money is distributed. And, uh, we, you know, we know back in, uh, I believe it was February, April, um, President Trump signed a law, federal law, that gave states more power to states as far as the distribution of Title X. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we support his effort in that. We know that uh, former former abortion clinic escort, uh, Governor Tom Wolf, does not support that. He's very much uh, pro-abortion, and we very much oppose him on that. Diane Gramley? You know, we have to look at the development of a baby and know full well that they're feeling when you get the heartbeat at three weeks, 21 days, three weeks, six days of leaving, you hear the heartbeat, and then shortly after that you can there's the brainwaves. Diane Gramley is president of the American Family Association of Pennsylvania. Diane, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. All right, let's turn to the other side now about uh, defunding uh, Planned Parenthood, not only here in Pennsylvania, but on the federal level as well across the country. Our guest uh, during this portion of the show is Sari Stevens, who is the executive director of Planned Parenthood Pennsylvania Advocates. Ms. Stevens, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, I'm going to tell you that we probably won't have time to get a lot of calls in today. You may be best uh, sending emails or leaving comments on WITF.org. But 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. First of all, uh, Sari, let me ask you this. Is federal money being used to pay for abortions? No, federal money uh, is prohibited from paying for abortions and has been for many decades. But when abortion opponents uh, say that the money you get from the feds indirectly pays for abortions, how can it be separated uh, to comply with the law? Uh, It's very simple. I mean, on on the first hand, anyone who's abided by a budget with line items can understand how certain line items fund different things. But um, just at the base level, every year we are audited by an independent auditor, um, by our fiscal agent that funds our services, to ensure that we are maintaining fiscal and financial um, separations, and um, those audits are, are can be provided to anyone to see. So there's there's nothing to hide, and those claims are, as most claims made by our opponents, just factually untrue. So when you hear someone say that, uh, okay, you're getting Medicaid money, you're getting money from the federal government, even if you're using it to pay for your electric, your equipment, uh, your salaries, that indirectly that does go to pay for abortions, how do you respond to that? Well, I think there's, I mean, there's a gross misunderstanding on of the way uh, medical reimbursements work, and particularly with defunding. There's a uh, a, a group of um, the population that believes that Planned Parenthood is given a, a large check and we do with it whatever we want. The reality is that um, I, I go into Planned Parenthood and I have my annual exam and I'm a Medicaid patient and I have a breast exam and I have a pap smear and I get tested for STDs and all of those codes are billed to Medicaid and our organization is paid back. It's the exact same way an OBGYN works. It's the exact same way a hospital works because we are a doctor's office. It's, we're, not, we're no different. I want to try to clear something up here. Uh, our previous guest, Diane Gramley, said that uh, uh, that mammograms, that uh, uh, this is something that the Planned Parenthood advertises and does. You just mentioned breast exams. Do you offer mammograms? No, most health centers don't in the country. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we don't. Um, but one of the unique niches of Planned Parenthood is where... Um, we're the immediate gateway to the healthcare system. So um, there's often wait times, particularly for low-income patients um, at FQHCs uh, with a with a OBGYN. But we offer same-day appointments no matter what. So if someone fears they have a urinary tract infection or they have a lump in their breast, 
or they um, um, have a sexually transmitted disease, those are all things that need to be treated immediately. And we will see that patient immediately, and we will get them right to the place where they need to go if it's not something that we can treat in our health centers. As I mentioned to um, Ms. Gramley, uh, there, I, I saw a figure that said, and, and you know, and uh, admittedly this was coming from a website that uh, was for defunding uh, Planned Parenthood that said that uh, one in ten of the women that uh, use your services are using your services for abortions. Uh, figures I've seen on Planned Parenthood websites is that 3% of your patients uh, are there for abortions. What is the figure? What is the accurate figure of the number of abortions performed? Uh, so the figure that we most commonly use is of services, and it's between 3 and 5% in Pennsylvania of total services provided. How do you come up with that number? Um, I, I mean, I can provide it to you. It's, oh, uh, no, I, I, you know, and, and, and quite frankly, I'll be honest with you, that's why I asked Diane where she came up with that uh, anecdotal story, because as you well know, there is a lot of misinformation that goes on <laughs> around this issue, and so yeah. like to find sources and resources that are, that are used, that 3 to 5 percent, I'm just asking how you come up with that number. Is it, you know, just a simple, this is the number of patients that we see here the number of abortions performed and the percentage compared to that's how it's used okay yeah scott i mean i mean we as a healthcare provider we have to deal in facts and the unfortunate reality is that people that are opposed to planned parenthood are not healthcare providers they are their sole mission is to take down our 100 year old organization so the way that we do our statistics and it is verified with um the actual patient numbers um i have the charts it's it's uh, we, we we don't have the luxury of being able to um, uh, to make things up, and so uh, about 10% of our patients are abortion clients, but many of them are also family planning clients of services provided. So of the whole host of range of services that we provide, three to five percent are abortion services. Okay, I'm a little bit confused. You said about 10% are abortion clients. Patients. Yeah, you can look at services versus patients. It's just a different way to look at it. Oh, and I okay. That because, um, you know, it's uh, it's important for everyone to have the whole the whole picture. You and know. I have to admit that under normal circumstances, I don't ask a guest to, uh, you know, provide information like this. But as as I said, uh, when we're talking about this topic, there is so much information out there. A lot of it's accurate. A lot of it's inaccurate. And that's why I kind of follow up with that. Uh, how much money do you bring in? As you heard Diane Gramley say, and as many uh, pro-life organizations and activists say, that Planned Parenthood is making money from abortions, that that is your major source of income. I don't have a figure on, on what our income is for abortion services. Um, abortions, I mean, again, are paid for by the individual uh, or by insurance um, and not by taxpayer dollars. Um, you know, I, I knew going into this conversation that abortion would come up, even though we're talking about defunding. Right. And but you know that's the whole reason behind, the whole motivation behind defunding. Right, which is it was just such a sad situation because we are at a point in our country's history where we're at a 30-year low for teen pregnancy, for abortion, um, and for unintended pregnancy. It's a 30-year low, and that is a result of increased access to family planning care, and Planned Parenthood is the nation's family planning provider. So the irony of thinking about, and I heard you get into this a little bit, the irony of thinking about eliminating the nation's family planning provider in the name of reducing abortion it just doesn't add up so you're saying that you know if you are defunded whether it be on a state level or the federal level that there would be more pregnancies and more abortions and this is not this is not like a projection we actually have seen this happen i think you alluded to it earlier scott um states have done this texas um indiana mike pence's home uh, state um, and Wisconsin, where Paul Ryan is from, in Texas, after the, the um, Planned Parenthood was defunded, pregnancy-related uh, deaths doubled. In um, Indiana, where a Planned Parenthood health center had to close, a county there had an unprecedented HIV outbreak, where the CDC had to come in. And then in um, Wisconsin, in Paul Ryan's district, there was a massive chlamydia and gonorrhea infection outbreak. 
this is about keeping people healthy. And when uh, Planned Parenthood health centers, 50 per, 50% of which are in medically underserved areas, go away, then people lose access to services. And the idea that they would be absorbed into the overburdened uh, healthcare network that exists today is just a complete ludicrous thing. Well, you talk about that because that has been uh, the alternative offered by those for, for women to get health screenings is just don't go to Planned Parenthood, go to these cl- the clinics across the country, or doctor's offices, that kind of thing. There are more people with insurance today. Whether that continues, we don't know. You know, that's kind of up in the air. But still, that there are more opportunities for people to go out and uh, for women in particular to go out and get screened. Right. That is their claim. Um, it's, uh, well, th- I would respond to it in two ways. First of all, why are politicians saying, I'm going to tell you where to get your health care? Um, secondly, they, I have not seen one provider produced by the opponent, by proponents of, of defunding to say that they'd be happy to take our clients. What I have is uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of FQHCs that we work with saying that they can't absorb our patient load, they won't absorb, be able to absorb our patient load, and that our referral relationship, because in all the areas where there's another community health care provider, we work in tandem. If somebody is, needs gynecological care in Harrisburg and they can't get into Hamilton Health Center, Hamilton refers them to us. Hamilton in, in Harrisburg, by the That's way. That's right. And if we have someone in our health center who got in on the same day because we offer those immediate services and needs further checkups, we're sending them back over to Hamilton. It's the, it's the delicate balance that's keeping our communities healthy. And to claim that 2.5 million low-income women would be absorbed into the burdened healthcare system is just, it's plain reckless. I want to talk a little bit about those other uh, services offered by Planned Parenthood. Uh, I saw a figure, and again, admittedly, this comes from uh, a website uh, that is anti-Planned Parenthood, anti-abortion, said that the number of cancer screenings that uh, Planned Parenthood has performed over the last few years, and didn't really uh, give a, a, you know, the the dates in which this happened, but that the number of cancer screenings are down by over a quarter, and some of the other tests that are being offered are down as well. Is that true? Well, not knowing what study you're looking at, um, I mean, patient numbers go up and down, so there's fluctuations year to year. Um, what I can tell you about Pennsylvania, um, we did 170,000 STD tests last year, 9,000 cervical cancer screenings, and 11,000 breast cancer screenings. Uh, the Guttmacher Institute expects that if Planned Parenthood was eliminated, we um, would not have averted 7,000 unintended pregnancies, 3,500 unintended deliveries, 2,400 abortions, 500 chlamydia affections. And the other piece of this is that would cost the state $47 million. So this is not only an issue about public health, it's about finances. When you prevent unintended pregnancies and you keep families healthy, particularly low-income families, you save the government and you save taxpayers money. Uh, Sari Stevens, I want to thank you very much for being on, uh, on with us uh, today. Uh, one final question, same one I ask uh, Diane, Diane Gramley. Uh, this is obviously a battle that won't end, and it is because, I mean, defunding is just part of the abortion issue. And let's face it, abortion is what is driving this. Uh, where do you go from here? We go to the streets, Scott. Um, we have been fighting. <laughs> the last eight months have been really, really tough. Um, but I can tell you we did... 2,400 events. We did 350,000 calls to Congress. We have a million petition signatures, and and we won this latest battle. We know it's not the last one, but women are making their voices heard in a way that we've never seen before. And so, um, we feel we feel vindicated, and we're uh, we know that the public is on our side. One in five women will be a Planned Parenthood patient in her lifetime. So think about that. Everyone listening to the show knows someone who's been our patient. And those, those women and men and people who care about these health care services are making their voices heard. And so um, we're fired up and ready to go. Sari Stevens is Executive Director of Planned Parenthood Pennsylvania Advocates. Ms. Stevens, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Earlier this week, the White House panel examining the nation's opioid epidemic asked President Trump to declare a national public health emergency to combat the ongoing crisis. Normally, public health emergencies are reserved for natural disasters, but that's how bad the opioid crisis has gotten. WITF's Transforming Health reporter Ben Allen has closely covered this issue the last few years, and he's here to update us on several fronts. Ben, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. You know, I, 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 I thought to myself that... Uh, you know, we've been talking about this a lot lately yeah. on, on, on Smart Talk, but it probably is, if not the most important issue, the most pressing issue that the nation is facing. It's actually, it, it has to be in the top, top three or top five, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the actual statistics, this uh, opioid crisis has surpassed the peak of the AIDS epidemic in terms of deaths. So this nationwide has surpassed the highest point that the AIDS epidemic ever got in terms of number of deaths. Here in Pennsylvania, 4642, that's the number of drug overdoses last year, according to a DEA report that came out last week. Scott, it's 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 crazy to think, but that is nearly double 2014's total, two years ago. That's nearly double 2014's total. And uh, the uh, the thing that we've been seeing over and over again that is, is often brought up um, on Smart Talk or in conversations I have with people is fentanyl. Um, 52% of the deaths last year were um, involved fentanyl, um, which is obviously a, a more potent uh, form of heroin. It's a synthetic uh, opioid. Um, the year before, in 2015, uh, just 26% of the deaths uh, involved fentanyl. So certainly uh, an escalating crisis on that front as well. And, you know, a lot of our listeners will say, well, you know, this has been covered here on WITF. You've done a fantastic yeah, job yeah. covering it. Uh, we've talked about it on Smart Talk. I see that the local TV stations now are uh, all doing specials. The local newspapers have all done something on this. What new is there? But it seems as though <laughs> every day there is a new story or something we didn't know ahead of time. Okay, so let's talk about a few things that you've investigated, right. a few of the things that uh, you've looked into. Medication-assisted treatment versus abstinence. This is a conversation that has been going on in the treatment community, and it was happening even before uh, the opioid crisis. But um, basically, it comes down to Suboxone, Methadone, other uh, kinds of uh, medications that people will take uh, that essentially uh, are, are replacement therapies. They help replace the feeling you would get from taking an opioid versus another camp that uh, is, is of the belief that abstinence uh, is the best uh, way, which means no drugs um, that, that you would take. Um, in Pennsylvania, Scott, it's been, uh, as I've covered this over the past three years, um, it has been very instructive to see how this has been handled. And really, the more and more I talk with people here in this state, the more and more it's becoming clear that uh, this state has been very hesitant to embrace medication-assisted treatment. And evidence consistently has shown that methadone and suboxone keeps people in treatment longer, it's more cost-effective, and it's more effective overall. Um, and so there certainly is a, 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 a school of thought here in Pennsylvania and, and in central Pennsylvania especially um, that medication-assisted treatment is not the way to go, even though the evidence does show that it is the most effective uh, treatment method out there. Uh, let's be clear. There are problems in the treatment world uh, with methadone and suboxone operators, some cash-only places that may, uh, you know, cater to people who don't necessarily want to get better but want to sell suboxone on the street. Um, other issues related to that, maybe not necessarily enough supports, uh, kind of fly-by-night operators that do show up. But there are problem operators in every industry. Let's not act like, uh, you know, every single industry isn't touched by problem operators. So here are the institutional challenges. And this is something that, uh, as I've talked with parents, um, has been very, very frustrating. And people who understand what treatment is and how treatment should be uh, handled. There are, I've been told, there are prominent treatment facilities here in Pennsylvania that will not accept patients who are receiving methadone or suboxone. That is a, a strong deterrent. 
um, that is a strong deterrent for someone not to uh, be uh, not to use those those therapies because then they know they won't be able to get into some of the big names here in Pennsylvania and and may may instead try to go the abstinence route which is not as as effective it can will we, work for some people can we get yeah. can we back get back to yeah. that for uh, if you would provide a little bit of background about suboxone and uh, methadone right so suboxone and methadone basically they replace the uh, the feeling you get um, they're known as opioid replacement therapies um, they replace the feeling you get so you don't feel that craving that you would to, to be on heroin uh, but you 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 do feel normal it helps you feel normal. It helps you function. There are probably people, if you know, um, you know, if if you're uh, living in central Pennsylvania, there may be people you know um, who are on Suboxone or on Methadone each and every day and live perfectly normal, functional lives. I've spent time with people who are on Methadone. Methadone is often dispensed early in the morning at a clinic, so you have to go every day. So. Uh, one person I spent uh, time with, she would get up in, at, at 5 a.m., get in the car, drive a half hour to the methadone clinic, go get her methadone, check in, you know, all the all the checks, and then go off to work. Um, and it's it's simply, you know, there's there's a stigma around it. Obviously, we've talked about that, but um, it's no different than any other medication you would take every single day. Um, and some people feel more comfortable with it than others. Um, but um, it, it, in terms of the actual principle of it, you're taking a prescription drug each and every day. But, and here's where the but comes in, yep. and, uh, and uh, you can explain yep. this a little bit better, uh, that you're replacing one drug with another. Right, and this is what um, Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price said just recently, and a spokesperson had to walk it back a little bit. Um, but uh, Secretary Price did say, as he was traveling the country on these opioid listening tours, you know, just that, you're replacing one drug with another. But when you think about it, Scott, you're replacing a very dangerous uh, drug that can lead to overdose more often than not with a drug that is stable, that is more safe, and that can help you get on a path of recovery. So uh, those who say you're replacing one drug with another and refuse to engage in uh, an honest debate about what that replacement might actually mean, it might mean you are a functional part of society, you are contributing to society. Those who just say you're replacing one drug with another and won't have the conversation beyond that point, it, it's hard to it's hard to to grapple with that because um, this is this is a, a recognized way of people getting help, people getting treatment, and that isn't to say abstinence is the best way forward or MAT is the best way forward for everyone. There are some ways that some people, abstinence works better. Some people, Suboxone works better. Methadone works better. Some people just like being on Vivitrol. Um, there are all different kinds of paths, but to act like one is better than the other um, and, and the system in Pennsylvania is set up to favor one over the other um, is is something to note. Why, why do you say that? Why is it set up that it's uh, favoring abstinence over uh, over the, the drug therapy? So there are a batch of bills in the legislature um, that would significantly uh, make it harder for people uh, to, to get methadone or suboxone. Methadone or suboxone clinics would uh, have a more difficult time surviving. Um, and, and and that's that's one part. So there are a number of bills. None of them have have become law. But it's worth noting that there are a lot of bills that would restrict suboxone or methadone. Scott, I follow this very closely. There aren't, aren't any bills that I have seen that restrict abstinence treatment that regulate abstinence treatment. Here's another another example for you. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, the legislature made it very clear how they felt about these options. They created a form to track people who die while receiving methadone treatment. So um, if you uh, are in the treatment of somebody and you die while, while you're using methadone, um, that, that caretaker, that, uh, that provider needs to fill out a form and report it to the state. If you're in the treatment of somebody 
and you die while receiving abstinence treatment, there's no such form. Um, that is very clearly a double standard. Um, to to uh, require people to fill out a form for receiving one kind of treatment and, and then dying and not require people who receive another kind of treatment and then die, that is very clearly a double standard. But I do want to be clear here. I mean, uh, th these drug therapies are relatively new in, in treating addiction. Uh, not not so much. Really? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, gonna. Okay. I'm well, gonna. Well, this yeah. is the first that we've heard of in the. In the yeah, league. I mean, these are these are certainly very. Um, you know, they're entering the mainstream more so. But okay. I, I've looked at studies that go back to the mid '90s oh, right. um, uh, on these on methadone and Suboxone. There are some new formulations. Vivitrol is is relatively new in terms of how it's formulated, um, but. But, you know, I, I, I'll pull out the studies if you want me no, to. No, no, that's all yeah. right. No, this isn't like our last <laughs> segment. Uh, but uh, I, I guess what I was getting at is that abstinence traditionally has been how most people who uh, are addicted to heroin right. or opioids now, uh, that how they have been treated. Well, and it's, a, it's worked for many people. Yeah, it's a, it hasn't worked for a lot of other people. It's an outgrowth of the alcoholic way of right, thinking right. about this it's it's a it's a natural outgrowth it's we've treated alcoholism this way now how can we treat uh substance use disorder related to opioids uh this way and um certainly and and that's that's an important you you bring that that point up scott and it's important to hit to hit on that i am not saying and and my reporting has never shown that abstinence doesn't work uh, or that, um, you know, it, there aren't success stories. There are success stories. I've talked with people who have gotten abstinence treatment and, and are, are functioning, contributing to society, uh, living a, a great life. And that is, it's, it's heartening to see that. But to, to, to favor one over the other is a mistake um, that uh, any expert that I've talked to would say. Uh, even you, you brought up the Presidential Commission. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. the they White put House out that report. Yeah. Um, even they said, even they said, government is making it more difficult for people to get medication-assisted treatment. And that is a government panel saying that. Um, now, yeah. there are some hopes uh, you know, beyond this, Pennsylvania is getting uh, $26.5 million to uh, really expand medication-assisted treatment as part of a bill known as the Cures Act, a big, big bipartisan bill that has its detractors. But um, also, uh, as part of that, Pennsylvania gets $26.5 million to really deploy medication-assisted treatment and make it more available to people. Um, I think they said about 6,000 people will be able to get medication-assisted treatment through that funding. But um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's worth noting that uh, there is a, an uphill uh, hill to climb here um, when it comes to uh, making sure that everyone has equal access to uh, all the drugs that are out there. Real quick. Because or therapies, move, I should say. Well, real quick, because I want to make uh, go on to a couple other yeah. topics. Is there a cost factor involved? Yeah, so the, the cost issue actually is an interesting one because it rarely gets discussed. Um, but as I mentioned at the top, it is more cost effective to be on these therapies, methadone or suboxone. Because think about it, you're taking a, a drug, just like a pill or something along those lines, and that, you've got that versus sitting in a expensive inpatient treatment facility that may cost 100 200 300 uh dollars a day um it, it in in the long term it actually is more effective uh from a cost point standpoint to be on uh, methadone or suboxone one other thing that I, I and i know we do have to move on here but one other thing is vivitrol we've heard a lot about this um, the evidence is still out on vivitrol and i want to be clear about that because it's getting a lot of talk some might even say there's been a lot of hype what about Vivitrol. Vivitrol is the shot you get where it blocks your receptors. Okay. Okay. And um, so every 28 days, you need to get that shot. So even if you were to use, you wouldn't be able to get high. Um, so people like it. Uh, you know, there, there's uh, a number of people I've talked to who like it. But again, anecdotes does not equal uh, complete evidence. So there really isn't an enough evidence out there to show whether it works or doesn't work right now. I would consider it kind 
kind of a pilot program, if you will. The State Department of Corrections is using it in their um, facilities right now. But notable to say they're using Vivitrol because the manufacturer is providing it for free to them. They do not offer Suboxone or Methadone in their facilities. Naloxone. We've talked a lot about naloxone in the last few years, uh, or Narcan, its brand name, uh, which, you know, has been hailed as a miracle drug, if you will, or a way to treat those who have overdosed. Basically, I mean, people, it's been described as bringing people back from the dead who have actually died. Uh, You know, first responders have it now, police officers, a lot of emergency personnel. Actually, families can buy it now. Uh, Anybody can buy it. Right. Anybody can buy it now. But we're hearing that there's a new strain of frustration that administering naloxone, that it is frustrating a lot of, of people. What, what What's going on here? Yeah, so first responders are getting frustrated with having to administer naloxone more and more frequently. And and um, I can certainly understand this. These doses stress ambulance companies, Scott. They can really add up when it comes to a financial standpoint. And when you think about the stress of a worker, imagine coming upon an overdose, seeing someone, um, whether in their house, on a sidewalk, um, in, a, in a public restroom, uh, often um, you see those scenes over and over again, and that can really, really weigh on you. And these are people that are pretty hardened from being in ambulances or uh, being on the street as a police officer or a firefighter. Um, and, and you see these scenes over and over again. Um, so the, there's a there's a lot of uh, frustration uh, on that point, and if you return to that person maybe two, three, four times, yeah, yeah, over and over again, which has happened in a number of communities, um, you can feel like you're not really making a lot of progress, like you're not really making much of the difference. So. The discussion has returned a little bit to is naloxone enabling people to um, feel more safe and to then allow them to, uh, you know, use heroin on a more uh, consistent basis. And a couple different uh, strands to this. One, dealers certainly have, uh, and it's been reported that dealers are distributing naloxone uh, to some people when they also give them heroin. Um, that's, That's one part of it. But um, there's there's also the the issue of um, of you know the the unintended consequences of the Good Samaritan law. So you know now if you use an overdose and I call nine one one even if I'm high, I am absolved of um, any responsibilities legally because uh, you know regarding my use there could be other charges against right. me. But but to, to yeah, encourage pretty people simple. to call it in, yeah, right. So. People feel more safe. The unintended consequences, people feel more safe calling that in. So what this all speaks to, though, uh, because, I, you know, I thought about this and talked to the number of people, uh, you know, people feel like they're not making progress because they're returning to the same people over and over again. This really hits on the bigger problem. Pennsylvania lacks an effective statewide warm handoff program. There are strong programs in other parts of the state. Berks County, York County have very strong warm handoff programs. And by warm handoff, I mean someone gets naloxone, they get taken to the emergency room, they get uh, treated. Is someone there to greet them, to get them into treatment, or to make them, uh, you know, to, to help them get into detox, to help them, you know, uh, there are a number of different paths that person could go. And in some cases, they're simply just checking themselves out and walking out of the emergency room without the follow-up that um, would uh, a, a state with a strong uh, program would make sure they were getting. Well, how does it get stronger? Because when Governor Wolf talks about this, right, and admittedly the Wolf administration has been aggressive. They've really emphasized this in, yeah. in, in the last few months. Warm handoff is a word you hear often. Is yep. that we have to have more warm handoffs? And this was the argument from the very beginning about uh, naloxone: is if you're not going to treat people. Well, then you are going to continue to go back. And, right. And if they know it's there, that there's something to save their life. Right. So it, it, it certainly is a challenge. And, you know, Scott, I know how the health system works, and this is a systemic issue. Um, it's going to take kind of piecemeal. You know, I think that that's, that, unfortunately, is the 
uh, is the is the path that's that's going to be taken here. In in York County, they have a, a, a relatively effective one. Like I mentioned, in Berks County, they have a relatively effective one. There also is another piece to this, which is that you know when when someone is treated and uh, set to be released. Sometimes they don't want to uh, get treatment. Um, they're not ready uh, for whatever reason, and so they, you know, there is no, um, there's no law, there's no uh, way to to necessarily uh, keep that person uh, under observation or anything along those lines, like you would have if they were. Um, having a mental health crisis. Um, so there has been an argument, and I know there was a bill that passed uh, a state house committee earlier this year um, to to create some kind of uh, procedure where you could hold someone for up to a certain amount of time um, if you felt that they were a danger to themselves or a danger to others. That's that's one path, but Scott, I'm going to be honest. There is no one solution. This is a messy, messy issue, and. Um, you know, it, it'll be easy for for people to say, well, why isn't there a warm handoff here and, and there? But um, even if you do have that warm handoff program, you're going to run into the problem of people not being necessarily ready to get into treatment. And as a result, um, they may not necessarily get the help that they, they so need. Well, Ben, we're almost out of time. I want to thank you for all your uh, all your reporting on this over the years. Yeah, Scott, it's been a real pleasure to, to be here on Smart Talk with you. I always enjoy our back and forth and uh, and sharing the uh, the reporting that I've been able to, uh, to, to put together in my time at WITF. Ben, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Uh, I should tell you that uh, speaking of Governor Wolf, coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, it's a Smart Talk road trip. We will be at the state capitol reporting uh, from the state capitol. I say reporting. We will be broadcasting from uh, the state capitol rotunda, right at the bottom of the stairs in the state capitol rotunda. Uh, with Governor Wolf, will be on the program. We also will have uh, State Treasurer Joe Tercella and Katie Meyer, WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief, will join us for a few minutes as well to talk about some issues that the state legislature is dealing with other than the state budget. I'm sure the Governor Wolf will be talking a lot about the, the state budget. So that's coming up tomorrow. If you'd like to attend, you still can do that, go to our website, witf.org slash events to RSVP. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.